Good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. This morning we're wrapping up our series on the book of Ruth. We'll be in Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. We're also wrapping up our bigger series that we've been calling Strong Old Testament Women. Um, the verses for today are found on page 9 in the ESV, and there's also a kids' version there at the bottom of page 9 for you boys and girls and students who are staying with us. We want you to be part of our service, and I said we have that for you. So, we're at the very end of this book, so let me do my best to kind of give you like a season one recap if you're visiting with us or if you, maybe you, you've missed a couple. So this lady named Naomi has a whole family and they, in a time of difficulty, they leave their home and they go somewhere where God says you're not supposed to go. And when they go there, their life falls apart. And we see the rest of the book is basically God brought them back with this person named Ruth, who's a, a Moabite. They brought her back and God basically takes two or three chapters to put their lives back together. He uses a man named Boaz who has resources, who, who's part of the family, who kind of helps him out. And we saw last week that this guy, Boaz, he comes and he officially rescues them by buying back land. He also ends up marrying Ruth. And so he's trying his best to restore them as best as he can with his own resources. We see God has used this to bring their life back together. Boaz, we saw last week, redeems Ruth in an actual courtroom. Shows us that saving, that redeeming, that rescuing is both official and costly. Just like our Redeemer, the real Redeemer, pays the price to ensure the security and hope of the beloved. And now as the story wraps up, we get to see the big picture of the whole thing. And the big picture of the whole thing is this beautiful portrait of a loving God. So with that in mind, if you are able, would you please stand as is our custom as we read uh, uh, Ruth 4, verses 13 through 22. This is God's word. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood came, gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, it is our joy to come before your word this morning to hear from you. Lord, it is our joy to come and be filled up by your grace to see how you minister to us through genealogies and the weird wrapping up of stories. Father, we ask that you would bring your grace to us even now and by your spirit, open this text up to us and us to it that we might receive and know more of Jesus and taste and see that you are good. And we ask all this, Father, in Jesus' great name, amen. And please be seated. So I wanna kind of get into this text. And one of the ways I wanna get into this is kind of do a little bit of autobiographical sketch, just very briefly of my own Christian journey. So I started out, I became a Christian as a teenager, 15, 16 years old, and I was a Southern Baptist. And I have no regrets about that. I'm not about to make fun of anybody here. Uh, I heard the gospel, it was living, it was active. Salvation was personal to me. The Bible was so real to me in my personal reading of it. And when I would read the word Y-O-U, I would assume it was singular. 
And so as I was taught, I would sometimes take my name and I would put it in there instead of the word you. Like, for God so loved Sean, he gave his only begotten son. I, I was enthusiastic. Jesus was real. He was personal. He, he was like an actual real, like, you know, person to whom I spoke. Um, I, I would sing about Jesus. I wanted to know more of Jesus. My faith was emotive. My faith was heartfelt. The gospel was not so much about what God did, you know, back then as much as what he was doing today in me. Then, confronted with intellectual challenges, we'll call it, to the gospel in college, which, which happens, um, never really finding an adequate church home during college, my faith became more cerebral, let's say. I started to really relish this thing called theology, right? The study of God, the study of, of the Bible, kind of in an academic sense. I especially liked what's called reformed theology. I jumped in with both feet in grad school. I became concerned about being very right, about being very correct. But in our denomination, they, they not so lovingly call you know, truly reformed. You know, and I realized, of course, that you, Y-O-U, the vast majority of times in the Bible is actually plural, that God makes promises to his people, not Sean. That God, Jesus said the scripture's all about him, not Sean. You know, so my faith as a result of that became less and less heartfelt and more heady. I quit really communing with Jesus because I knew theologically, well, actually, we were supposed to pray to God through Jesus, not to Jesus. And so I was like, well, I gotta be right. So I stopped praying to Jesus, stopped talking to him. You know, we're, we're not mad, we're just, we're on a break, apparently. Um, and I would talk to Father instead. And in my personal reading, I would spend much, much more time in the, what's called the epistles. That's the second part of the New Testament, all these letters about Jesus, instead of reading the gospels of Jesus. My faith became less alive. I still had joy, and, I'm not, and what I was doing was not bad. Please don't hear me saying that. But it was very much less applicable to me today. The gospel was all about the historical reality that God did back then on the cross and had very little to do with my today. Those two views, they're stereotypes. Um, okay, I, I get that. They're, they're extremes. We'll call one you Christianity, and we'll call the other y'all Christianity. They're in church, right? They're in each one of us. You Christianity is kind of like, it's personal. It's subjective. It's really focused on us. It's, it tends to be more evangelical. It tends to be emotional, even romantic. It's a very heartfelt faith. When, when, when you people, sorry, when you Christians, and when you people, when you Christians, <laughs> when they feel like raising their hands in worship, they do. Y'all Christianity, on the other hand, is more, it's more informational. It's objective. It tends to be very reformed over evangelical. It tends to be very cognitive, very dutiful, a very heady faith. When, when they feel like raising their hands in worship, um, they get over it. So actually, I, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. They never feel like raising their hands in worship, so okay. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, which ones are you? And we're gonna talk about this you Christianity versus y'all Christianity today. So remember that distinction, because both are right. Both are needed, and both are riddled with pitfalls. Again, we're all a mixture of those things, but we, but we will tend towards one of those extremes. Y'all Christians stand fast 
that the gospel is absolutely about the objective, official, historical truth of what God did in Jesus Christ to pay the price for our guilt, to declare us free in his court of law. Hallelujah, amen. We saw that last week in Ruth. You Christians stand fast on the fact that the gospel is absolutely about what God is doing today in working out that historical reality through a living, joyful faith in a child of God, which is what we're going to see today as we wrap up the book of Ruth. That gets us to our theme for today, which is this. God loves y'all, and he especially loves you. So what, what I want to do is I want to work backwards. We're going to jump into God loves y'all, and, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 22. And this is, this is the genealogy part, right? Let's talk about some begats if you're a King James fan, right? How many people are like, yeah, let's do some begats, right? I want to talk about this. Well, just real quick Bible thing. Every genealogy is always a theological statement. Don't throw anything at me. There is not a full, complete genealogy anywhere in the Bible because they're always edited to make a theological point. Okay, we know from other sources, there are more people between Perez and David than this genealogy, but it, it's edited to make a point. So there's theology here, and the point is this. Look at how God got from the age of the patriarchs to King David. Who's this Perez guy? We heard of him back in verse 12. He's one of Judah's sons. If you remember, the tribes of Israel are actually sons of Israel. One of Judah's sons, born by a foreign woman like Ruth, is Perez, and he basically helped found the city of Bethlehem where this takes place. He's like their George Washington, okay? He's the founding father. They talk about Perez a lot. And the point is, look how God got from him to David, the great King David, the great David. This, by the way, is an example of, of the truth of the Bible. Now, hear me out. I know it's my job to say that, but hear me out. So you know how whenever someone finally becomes like the candidate for president, like the final two candidates, in our the two main candidates, I should say. You know how all of a sudden, like within a week, suddenly this, this biography pops out about them? Like, wow, that's fast. I'm sure you really wrote that. And in that biography, do they ever like do the media's job for them and like expose all of their dirt, all of their baggage, all of the things that disqualifies them from office? Is that what those books are about? Okay, no, right? No, you write checks to make those things go away and you write books to make people forget about them, right? You say all the good things. Here's what this person did. Here's why they're glowing and they're shiny and they're new and hot and you don't want this other old busted person. You want this new hotness person, right? Well, if you're writing a book to show how they got from the chaos of judges to the stability of the Davidic monarchy, you don't put in there that David has a Moabite ancestor we don't like foreigners at this stage in Israel's history. You hide that. You write a check to make that go away. But because it actually happened, they include it in the story because it's real, it's reality, and it's truth. You don't cover, you, you cover that stuff up if you're making this up. But here they lay it bare. Israel's great, greatest king of all time had a Moabite ancestor. And for us, we don't get the big deal. For them, it was a big deal. They liked purity of bloodline at this point. They didn't like foreigners. This is a really big deal. But here's, it's even bigger deal. Here's what's more important than all of that. In all this mess and pain and struggle and redemption, the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, everything we've plotted through the last month, it ended up getting God's people to King David. All the trials, all the triumphs, all the heartaches, all the challenges, they weren't haphazard. There was a purpose behind everything they went through. 
The sovereign king of all things was guiding their lives to bring about his king for his people because God loves y'all. I mean, we read this story, and if you sit down and read it, it takes like maybe 15 minutes to read if you read slow. It reads a lot like a story about the struggle and triumph of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, but actually we see here because of this genealogy, it's actually about God meeting the dark days of the judges with the stability and grace of the king who is actually a man after his own heart, King David. Oh, take heart in that. We so rarely know what God is doing behind the scenes. And this not knowing should lead those of us who do know him, it should lead us to hope, not despair, because God takes care of his people. God loves y'all. But there's more. God was working an even greater redeemer than King David. And we know this, don't we, as New Testament Christians, that God is showing us here that he has laid the foundation for the Savior, the redeemer of all his people through Ruth. Jesus is of the line of David. Therefore, Jesus is also of the line of Ruth. The second person of the Trinity was foreordained to become human through Ruth and Boaz because this is about God saving y'all. Here's how we put it for the boys and girls. Boys and girls, I wanna make sure you're still tracking with me. Let's look together at the bottom of page nine at your verse 18, okay? It says this. It says, here's how God blessed all his people through Ruth. You see, boys and girls, students still here, the book of Ruth is ultimately about Jesus. It's about God's grand story of redemption through Jesus of all his people. This is about God making all things new. So it reads a lot like Ruth, but really it's almost about us, that God is gonna do something to overcome the sin in us and the sin in our world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God took care of everything in Ruth and Naomi's life because his one unique son would come through that line. The famine was to get Naomi to leave. All the catastrophe was to get her to come back with Ruth so she could have a child who could eventually give forth the line of Jesus. It's an amazing story. Oh, take that to heart, man. When, when bad things happen, and let's just own the reality, bad things happen, right? Becoming a Christian doesn't get rid of those bad things at all. So bad things happen to all of us. And very often, those of us who are churched, we get mad at God, don't we? And I'm not gonna sit here and like defend God. Okay, that's not what I'm about. I, I respect your pain too much to, to try to do that. But I do wanna point out that when we get mad at God, that, that emotional response, that actually betrays a deeper truth. And that truth is this. If you have a God who's big enough to get mad at, you have a God who's big enough to have reasons you don't know about. Like we see here. He has his reasons, including the junk that Naomi went through that she rather wish she didn't was to bring about a greater purpose. And so if you're going through junk right now, I know that's not helpful, I know. But God loves y'all, and so you're not alone. If you're going through something right now, you have friends, you have resources, don't suffer alone. Let someone walk alongside of you, share your life with them and let them know. Don't suffer by yourself. I mean, you can use Naomi as an example. Even in all of her suffering, if you remember, if you've been here, the first couple chapters is Naomi actually never gave up on God's faithfulness to his own people. Now, she believed God was out to get her. She's like, man, I don't know what I did, but this guy's out to kill me, but he loves his people. And maybe you can be part of his people, but he hates me. She actually says that in the text, God is out to kill me. 
But she knew deep down that God adored and loved his people. So she gave Ruth hopes and go to God's people because he digs them. She knew the character of God. And now we readers of Ruth know the character of God as well. He used Ruth and Naomi's lives to bring about great King David. And then we get to see he also used them to bring about great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing could stop that plan because God digs his people. He has a plan and he has a promise to save his people from their sin and it comes about through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because God loves y'all. But we also see, starting in verses 14 and 17, that he especially loves you. I wanna zoom in here. Here's one of the things I've really appreciated about the book of Ruth as I've been going through this with you, especially here at the end. Okay, theologically, we have to point out that yes, this is a way to get to King David and then also ultimately a way to get to Jesus from David. But the way the text is written itself, it will not let us get past this interesting focus on Naomi. In many ways, it shouldn't be called Ruth. It should be called Naomi because it really, it all comes back to her so often. All the junk in chapter one began with her leaving and then coming back home with Ruth at the perfect time. Chapter two, it's Boaz's connection to Naomi is the reason he is so kind to Ruth. And the chapter ends with Naomi being shown fed and settled and semi-happy. Chapter three begins with Naomi has this plan to kind of get Boaz moving on this redemption thing. And at the end of chapter three, Boaz says, okay, I'll do it. And he makes a promise not to Ruth. He makes a promise with a gift to Naomi. Chapter four, they meet at the gate in the courtroom to talk about Naomi and her property. And right here, finally, we're talking about Naomi and the grandson on her lap. The text almost reads like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ruth and Boaz live happily ever after and have a son, blah, blah, blah. But look at Naomi and her grandson. It really is about her. Here's how he put it for the boys and girls to show this focus. Let's look at verse 14 of your translation, boys and girls. It said this, that her neighbor said to Naomi, praise God, he has done what he promised and given you a redeemer. See, God made promises to her and he has given her a redeemer. He has restored her life through this son. In fact, verse 14 in the ESV says that, she has, that, that God has not left her without a redeemer. And what's interesting about it, it says that word L-O-R-D, we've talked about this, whenever you see capital L-O-R-D in scripture, it's a translation of a Hebrew word that we don't really know fully what it is, but we do know this, it's kind of like God's first name. So, you know, whatever God's first name is, he revealed it to Moses in the burning bush. We don't know how to translate it, so we translate it capital L-O-R-D. It's God's first personal name. That God, the Lord, has only taken action twice in the book of Ruth. Once in chapter one, verse six, to get Naomi to come back home. Again, he took action towards Naomi. And here, he takes action towards Naomi as well and not withholding her grandson. So God's action that he specifically takes is given credit for is always focused on Naomi. This is personal because God loves you along with y'all. And to make it clear that we don't miss it, Obed is not a blood relative of Naomi technically. There's technically no connection here. Ruth makes that connection by saying, I want you to be the nurse now, the live-in nanny, the au pair. I want you to be here and be present as if he is part of your family because you are. She becomes Obed's main caregiver. It's a personal blessing to her. And then in verse 15, I love it, they say the baby is a restorer of life to her. 
Okay, this is kind of an old illustration. It's the best I could think of. You don't, it's not really applicable to smartphones, but if you're ever surfing the internet on like, you know, a computer thing, you know, screen, laptop, or maybe even old-fashioned desktop, and especially if you're using, you know, like a Microsoft-based browser, um, sometimes, if you notice how the page just doesn't load well, or sometimes like, there's like that weird blank spot with like a little X, there should be a picture there and it just doesn't load. All right, so what do you do, right? Well, you just go and click the little swirly thing, right? Or if you're really fancy, you hit Control-R. Or if you're like a computer geek, F5, right? And they all mean the same thing, right? Refresh. Let's redo this and load it all from scratch at the beginning. Nice. That's what this Hebrew word really means. This is a refresh button on Naomi's life. God comes and says, you know what, let's try this again. And he reloads the whole page by giving her this grandson. God has refreshed her life with this child. Her family line will go on. She will be taken care of. This is personal to Naomi. God has restored and renewed Naomi. He has ensured her earthly comfort and provision. This is not just survival. This is beyond survival. He's given her all her heart desires in this culture. Okay, great, thanks. Why do you keep saying that over and over again? What's the big deal? Here is the big deal. God didn't have to do any of that. His great covenant promises from the very beginning, right after the fall in Genesis 3.15, one day, someday, I will bring someone to undo all of this junk. That huge covenant promise was taken care of with Ruth and Boaz having a child who would lead to the Redeemer. That's done, his big promises. That, that was a have to because he made obligations. All this goodness to Naomi is a want to because he loves you. He wants to do good to her. He's not begrudging. He wants to do this for her because God loves Naomi. Those of you who are y'all Christians who tend to be in that camp, one of our foibles is to really misunderstand God, to really misunderstand the kindness and the love of God. I've used this illustration before, so if it's a repeat, I apologize. Um, if you bring a visitor, you'll actually hope I use it, because I hope he uses that illustration again. So anyway, so when um, mid-90s, the remake of the movie Sabrina came out, uh, the actor was Greg Kinnear and Harrison Ford. Greg Kinnear's uh, career was kind of just getting started, so it was a big deal for him to be starring beside Harrison Ford. And he was in an interview one time, and the person was like, what was it like to star with Harrison Ford, you know, Han Solo and, and Indiana Jones, all those other things. <clears throat> And he said, you know, Harrison is like one of the greatest guys. So let's just pause for a second, like realize there are humans on earth who get to look at that man and call him Harrison. Anyway, um, he says, Harrison is like the nicest guy in the world. He would, he would do anything for you. He'd give you the shirt off his back. If you didn't understand something on set, he was actually very kind and very helpful. He didn't act like a big star at all. He was a wonderful, kind man. But you just never got over the feeling that at any given moment, he could just pop you. <laughs> and I wonder... How many of us y'all Christians think that about God? The kind, good, gentle stuff, yeah, that's true, but he's gotta like actively press into that because his like default mode, if he lets his guard down, you know, like, like we do, is harsh and mean and, and kind of cruel and he's not really happy with us and wants us to go away because we bug him. See, and, and because we struggle with that to believe God's love, we're suspicious of Christians who are too happy, aren't we? Don't raise your hand. I know you, but you, you right? It's, I, I know, let's, let's own it together. I know. 
See, the book of Ruth reminds us that God has chosen a people for himself because he digs them. He's going to save them. He's going to protect them. But in focusing on the fact that God adores y'all, his people, don't miss that he's pretty crazy about you too, the individuals who make it up. The text won't let you miss out on this. He keeps coming back to bless Naomi specifically because he wants to, not because he has to. Is that your picture of God? A God who just likes to do good because he wants to? I'm gonna share with you a verse. We use it for our assurance of pardon, but I also wanna look at it here. Zephaniah 3.17. It's like one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. It says this. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Did you know that was in the Bible? I mean, especially in the mean Old Testament. Did you know that was there? That God is actually whooping it up for joy because he loves you singular that much. And for those of you who are like, wait a second, what's going on here? It, it, you, you trivia buffs. Yes, in Hebrew, the word you and all that verse is singular. But here's what's fun about it. The previous verse shows it's referring to the collective city of Jerusalem. So it's actually plural, plural because God is coming along and saying, I love y'all and I love you. And it's right there in Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17. It's both. Because God is that kind of overwhelming, overflowing, lavishing love for his people. What would it change in your life if you actually believed that? Instead of just giving me the nice Presbyterian, mm. what if you actually believe that God has that overwhelming love at his deepest, basest character? Hear this. God loves you individually. He never gets so wrapped up in the big picture that he forgets his precious child, you. Don't ever fall for the lie that God the Father is austere, he's unloving, um, that, that Jesus has to convince the Father to be kind to us. No, the gospel was the Father's idea, the Bible tells us. Over and over in his life when Jesus was confronted, what did he say? I came to do my Father's will. It was God's idea to do this because he loves y'all and he loves you. How that individual, personal connection, that closeness is what God offers you through Jesus Christ. He has a plan to redeem his people and he especially has a plan to redeem you because he loves you. So let's just wrap this up. It's a couple quick things I want to point out. During trials, during suffering that we all go through, maybe they're pretty severe. Maybe they're just the quiet desperation of an unfulfilled life. Remember, God loves you. Life can be difficult, life can be challenging, and quite often it is, but in those trials, don't be tempted to despair or bitterness. Look again at God's grace to Naomi here. She did not know the importance of Obed. She never met David, she was dead before he was born, and she certainly did not know who Jesus was. The idea that God would one day, someday undo all this junk was just a whiff. It was just an appetizer coming from the kitchen at this point in Old Testament history. They had no idea. And yet, while she was struggling, she didn't know Obed was coming. And it gives us wisdom in our struggles. We just don't know enough about God's plans to despair, to think that we don't matter. The ending of the book of Ruth reminds us that God loves us personally and God uses individuals to bring great blessings to all his people. And so often those individuals are taken right through really, really hard things. Second, 
kind of examine your heart. Let's do a gut check real quick. Do do you kind of tend to be a y'all Christian or you tend to be a you Christian? Is your faith, if I could put it this way, it's an oversimplification. Is your faith primarily of the heart or primarily of the head? If you lean towards you Christianity, man, in your emotive, living, vibrant faith, make sure you ground it in truth that all of your guilt objectively was taken away and that God perfectly accepts you in Jesus Christ because of what he has done. Don't let your daily emotional response to the gospel dictate your security in Jesus. If you lean towards y'all, Christianity, is God a person? Like living an active person or is he kind of like the force on Star Wars? Is, God, is that actual person of God doing things today? Do you really believe that God loves you lavishly? Oh, he's not begrudging to save. He rejoices over his people individually. And if you are in Jesus, that means you. God really does rejoice over you. And if this has all gone over your head, like I don't even know what you're talking about, dude. <laughs> I don't even sure if I'm a Christian. I'm here because I'm like, visiting somebody. You know, God loves his people, and you can be one of them. Turn from everything you've looked to for happiness, all the stuff you cling to like a life raft in your own struggles and trials that just haven't done it for you. Just let them go. Turn from all those things and place your simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. He won't just fix it. I'm not going to promise that because he doesn't. But he'll give you hope. He'll give you resources and he'll help you through those trials. He'll give you a community and a family because as God loves you, he'll put you into a family. You can see that God loves y'all. Now, if you don't know Jesus, you can even today. Place your faith and trust in him and do it now. Let's pray together. Gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. We do thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have died. And you did it out of the great love with which the Father has for us. Now, Lord God, we do ask that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and portrayed as crucified for sinners and raised for new life, that you would be true to your promise, that you would draw all people to him even now. We pray, Lord, that you would bring about new life in Christ in this very moment and that people would confess faith in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done right here in this room as it is in heaven as you build your family. We pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.